0: All right, let's get started this morning. We're going to continue talking about uh, dispensationalism because we did not finish. It's a big task, it's a big concept. And then we're going to move into covenantalism, which I'm not sure is a word. Thank you. But I made it up anyway. Um, um, so let's get. Do you guys have notes? Does everybody get there? Grace has. Um, here she comes. She will be passing out the latest outline. Does that help you guys? Because if it doesn't, I'll stop. All right, I don't know that we're going to get to that one today, but I'm going to try. A little bit, yeah. Um, the goal here was not to race through things, was but to explain things as best that we can so that when we do get to the actual text... There's a solid foundation of how we're reading it and why we're reading it the way we are. Um, and we'll talk about some of those things today. So we were talking last week about dispensationalism and what it is and how it, uh, how it, as a hermeneutical system, molds and shapes the way we understand the entire narrative of the Bible, right? And we talked that there are several, uh, that, that uh, uh, um, Darby... Uh, was the one who came up with dispensationalism. It was popular in the late 1800s, made more popular by the Schofield Bible in 1909. It is a newcomer to the party. All right? Dispensationalism has not been around, as we understand it, for very long. 100 and what? 18 years. 109 years. Um, So... uh, it understands the Bible to be broke out into seven dis- specific or distinct dispensations of or, or uh, economies of God's revelation to man. Um, and we went through them. However, most people would recognize as in evangelical circles as, uh, as there being only three. An old covenant, a new covenant, and a millennial reign. Okay? So I'm just giving a quick overview and synopsis. So... Um, And we came to an understanding that there were four distinct things uh, or four points of distinction that I, and that's where we stopped last week and I want to pick up from there. So those four distinctions on the dispensational hermeneutic are a fundamental distinction between Israel and the church. Anybody remember that dialogue? And we spent a couple of minutes going over the idea of parenthetical eschatology or parenthetical theology wherein the church or the church age or the age or dispensation of grace is parenthetical to God's eternal plan. That God is distinctly and primarily concerned with the nation of Israel because that's to whom all the promises were made. Those are His chosen earthly people. But because they rejected the Messiah, God has now turned, suspended His program to Israel and brought in the Jews. Foreseen, for sure but secondary to Israel, okay? Once the fullness of the Gentiles have been brought in, God will resume his plan with the Israelites, okay? And that is really, really, really high-level view of, of what they understand. For me to bore down into it is not the purview of this class. Yes, Doug. No, I I meant the Christians are secondary to Israel. So I may have, I may have gotten my tongue in front of my eye teeth. Couldn't see what I was saying. <laughs> uh, all right. So we have a fundamental distinction between. The church as God's spiritual people and the Israelite nation or the Jews as God's earthly people. That is huge in dispensationalism. And it's almost to the point of heretical if you do not hold to the Jews as having a special place in God's economy. And they, several of their authors will actually say that. Okay, so point number two, distinction, fundamental distinction between law and grace To the point that they are almost mutually exclusive. Right? That is why many evangelicals will claim to be a New Testament Christian. Or we need to be teaching out of the New Testament more than the Old. Or you'll hear different statements like that. Okay? Third distinction is um, what we've already said, that the New Testament church is a parenthesis in God's plan. And the fourth distinction is um, that there is a distinct, uh, that there is a, or the fourth statement is that there's a distinction between the rapture and the second coming. How many of you have heard of the rapture? Please raise your hands so that we can see them at home on the, on the tape. <laughs> All right. What is the rapture? Yes, Grace. I'm on, um, I don't know, page, I'm on last week's page, It's the bottom of page one, last week's notes. I'm almost to literalism, and we're going to talk about literalism, all right, because there are two distinctions that go along with the hermeneutic of dispensation that we need to understand that are somewhat different than they are with covenant theology, and I did not include those on your notes because it dawned on me that I forgot them. For, uh, for the covenant aspect, but we'll cover it anyway if we get that far today. All right. Everybody caught up? Everybody know where we're at? Somebody help Dan find his spot. All right. While they're finding their thing, who can tell me the difference between the rapture and the second coming? Okay, okay, all right, yeah, that's part of it, so the rapture, or the rupture, I mean rapture, (laughs) second coming, and we're going to talk about this, and I've still thought about, and I haven't gotten to it yet, but I may include a lesson on Daniel 70 weeks. And the reason that I'm thinking about doing that is because most of you understand the Bible according to the theology of Daniel 70 weeks, and you don't know it. And um, it's very important that you understand Daniel 70 weeks has to do with there being a, a week at times, times and a half, and all of that other stuff and the way that they lay it out for dispensationalism. Is different than the way that all millennials under, uh, millennialists understand it. So the rapture. What is the rapture? Now here's the deal. Here's, here's why this is important. Because this constitutes an ending or a culmination of two specific salvation plans. Most people don't realize that. This one is for the, the Gentiles. Church. All right. Which Israel is not a part of, by the way. And this one is uh, culminates God's work for Israel, for physical Israel. Okay. Oops. All right. So the reason that there are two separate and distinct comings in dispensationalism is because you have to have a conclusion to the salvation plans established for each one. Okay. So the timeline is, is that we're in the church age, we come along like this, and then all of a sudden Jesus comes back, but only in the clouds, this is a cloud, and the church is snatched up, that's the Hollywood symbol, you know, the planes are falling out of the sky, cars are running through, you know, parking lots with no drivers in them, Um, people come in and, you know, like there's water running, but nobody at the sink, just... Whatever, you know, you can come up with, Hollywood has. So the church is raptured out. They meet Christ in the air according to the first Thessalonians. And they are, this is where I get a little bit dicey on this whole thing. I'm not really sure what happens. I think they go to heaven. Okay? But they're they're in a state of being with Christ in the clouds that might be heaven. I don't know. But what I'm going to write heaven in. Okay, that that supposes that heaven is its own place and that it's a spatial, linear time-space place, which it's not. Heaven is wherever God is. So, um, anyway, the church is caught up. That means that there's no church here, right? So, at this point, we have a seven-year tribulation. This is specifically for the Israelite nation, and everything that happens in this time period somehow orients around what's going on in the Middle East. Everything. Okay? At the end of this seven year tribulation is when there is a great battle called the Battle of Armageddon. Right? You heard about that? Where actually the, the entire armies of the world come, gather at a place, and they wage war on who? Yeah. And then God intervenes, right? And when he intervenes, he comes down, he puts one foot on, uh, he puts. He lands on the Mount of Olives and it splits in two. And um, the Antichrist and the beast are dealt with here. And then after this comes a millennial reign. So this is the second coming here, okay? And then after this is the millennial reign. which is where God is reestablishes and makes good on all of his promises made to Abraham. Temple sacrifices are reestablished. The temple is physical. There's the new Jewish priesthood. And the Gentile church that was raptured up, they come with him at this point, and they rule and reign with him physically on the earth. All right. And during this time, according to their understanding of Ezekiel, there are going to be sinners, Gentiles, as well as the redeemed on earth are those that are not I don't know if you can call it sinners but it does say that those who who have who are not holy uh, no sin shall enter the holy city is some of the, the wording from Ezekiel so um, and then Satan is loosed at the end of the millennial reign God then deals with death Satan cast it into the lake of fire and at that point I think we go back to here um Or there's a new heaven and a new earth. But I think it's considered spiritual. Okay? That's why there's two second comings in a dispensational hermeneutic. Because you have to have a conclusion on both salvation plans. All right. Um, Now then. Let's move on down. Um, We already talked about that. Contains within a little subcategory. All right. As we said, this is actually called redemptive dualism, um, which is a a statement made by Kim Riddlebarger, and uh, I like it. So, So that's that. Now then, in order for this to all work, there is a concept in dispensationalism called literalism. We've talked about that when we were talking about the various hermeneutics, right? So what is literalism? The basic statement in dispensationalism is that because of all the things that were prophesied in the Old Testament about Jesus coming to earth actually happened literally, everything that is prophesied going forward into the new heaven and the new earth should also be accomplished literally. That is basically what every one of the dispensational theologians that I can read state. Okay? So because everything literally happened that was prophesied in the Old Testament concerning Jesus, that he actually came to earth, that he actually died, that he was actually tried, that he was all of those things. Since they were literally fulfilled, everything going forward about the rest of the Old Testament must also be literally fulfilled. Okay? And it is from this this sub-hermeneutic that all of the stuff about Israel comes from. Okay, this is why this is important. All right, let's I'm gonna just read some stuff. Uh, this is oh they call it uh, the the term in dispensation is consistent. It's consistent literalism, that's what they call it. Okay, because it was one way, it's gonna continue on being the same way. All right? Everybody okay so far? Questions? Am I running up, You've got a oh-my-gosh look on your face. <laughs> Just stop me whenever if you have questions. Huh? Oh, that's right. That's over there. So if you guys have questions, please raise your hand, and we'll get the mic to you. All right, literalism. Charles Ryrie. How many of you have heard of Ryrie study Bible? Charles Ryrie. All right, he states this. Dispensationalists claim that their principle of hermeneutic is that of a literal interpretation. Now, this is especially true when you start getting into eschatological language or prophetic literature in the Bible. The prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the first coming of Christ, his birth, ministry, death, and resurrection were all fulfilled literally. There is then no non-literal fulfillment of these promises in the New Testament. Okay? So because they say that now, they want to stay consistent. John Wolverud, or Wolvord, how many of you have heard of him? John Wolvord, if you read any dispensational literature, especially about rapture, second coming, all of that stuff, he's the guy you'll probably end up reading. All right? He says this the Bible should be interpreted in its ordinary grammatical and historical meaning in all areas of theology. Unless contextual or theological reasons make it clear that this was not intended by the writer. Prophecies are therefore to be taken literally. The exact interpretation following the pattern of the law of fulfillment established by prophecies already fulfilled in keeping with the entire doctrine. Okay, that's a lot of words. But basically is saying that all scripture with regards to prof- prophecy should be taken literally unless it's clear. And here's a clear text. That the dragon calls the beast out of the sea, and the beast has what? A bunch of heads, crowns, steel teeth, right? So it's pretty clear that somewhere in the not-too-distant future, a red dragon is not going to come out of the sky, stand on the ocean, beckon some weird being to come out of the ocean, and we've got this thing coming out of the ocean, right? Right? So in those cases, we realize that we're not dealing with a literal concept, and so they would say dispensationalists that we have to have to spiritually interpret that, okay? Because the text calls for it contextually. All right. Because of the literalism, Israel will reign uh, regain the land promised by God, a promise dispensationalists believe literally fulfilled in 1948. I mean, if you've heard that. Keep an eye on the Middle East. Israel got its land back. Now we're on the fast track to the rapture. I grew up with that. Every time a siren went off when I was a kid in, high, in, in, in elementary school, I had the teacher call my mom. But I was convinced that Jesus just came back and I got left. What a horrible way to grow up. I'm serious. I was scared out of my mind. Because in this particular dispensation you can sin at any given time not know it and be left because you can including this you can lose your salvation without realizing it that's why I got saved about once a week <laughs> I'm telling you man when they scare you like that in you know in those churches they have the best altar calls everybody's like whoa run into the altar. I'm not trying to make fun, but I'm I am saying that this kind of thing is really hard to grow up with as a kid. All right? Um crucial to the dispensationalist reading of biblical pros- prophecy drawn primarily from Daniel and Revelation but also to some degree from Ezekiel is the assertion that the Jewish temple will be rebuilt on the temple mount as a per- precursor to the Lord returning to restore the earthly kingdom to Israel. How many of you have heard that? How many of you have heard that, oh my gosh, what is Israel going to do? Because what sits on the original temple site? The Dome of the Rock. How in the world is Christendom going to remove the Dome of the Rock so that Daniel's temp- uh, David's temple could be rebuilt? Well, in many of the eschatological classes that I went through even in seminary there were great speculation and entire classes on how that was going to happen all right so literalism is a big big deal now according when you have literalism you also have what's called a chronological system and we're going to talk about that in a minute because it's literal this necessitates a second sub-hermeneutic sub-herm- called Chronological. It's a G. Okay. So you have what's called a chronological aspect. That is, these two go hand in hand. If you're going to have literalism, you have to read the Bible in a, chrono- uh, especially those things pertaining to future events or end time prophecies in a chronological order. That's why when you read many times, and this is going to be important for us when 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 Rick and I start talking about the actual text, you're going to find that we are not interpreting it in this manner. Okay? We do not see the bulls, the trumpets, and the um, seals, and I got them backwards, um, as being chronologically independent. We understand them to be cyclical Predominantly pertaining to the same event. Okay, and then we'll get to that in a little bit. But chronology is a huge deal in dispensationalism. Now, back to literalism. I want to point out something to you about how literalists understand this. Anybody know what Revelation twenty-one one says? Anybody got a Bible handy? Revelation twenty-one, one. For those of you at home, please open your Bibles. Then I saw a new heaven. Oh. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> I might come out of heaven. <laughs> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Uh-huh. All right. What does the last line of that say? No more ocean. <laughs> Said the surfer. Um, all right. No more sea. There are entire dispensational theologies on why there is no more water in the new heaven and the new earth. Because the only water is going to be that which issues forth out of the temple whereby the trees of the nations will be watered why because that's a literal interpretation and there's no reason for me not to understand it in that way there's no contextual reason for me to say that's not what that means right we understand what a sea is we understand That no more means it won't be there. So there's no contextual concept to suggest that this does not literally mean that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no bodies of water except that which issues forth from the tabernacle or from the temple, physical, to water the trees of the garden. Right? How many of you have heard this? Okay, I've I've heard it quite a bit. So we have an opportunity here to understand that literalism suggests something that is kind of odd, right? Because even in the Old Testament, at the creation, there was bodies of water. So if we're talking about creation being restored and there being a new creation, should we not try and figure out what no more sea means? Well, we should. This is a spiritual... Hermeneutic. This is consistent with amillennialism or covenant theology. What does no more sea mean? Anybody want to take a speculated guess? (laughs) No salt water anymore. Huh? Grace? Okay. All right. Let it be known to those that are listening at home that nobody has a... Word, let me just say it to you this way. Throughout scripture, the idea of raging waters has been that which has opposed the purposes of Christ and the purposes of God. Raging waters in the New Testament and the Old Testament always has to do with uncreation or disorder and chaos. And in the raging waters lives who? Leviathan. If you trace out who Leviathan is throughout the Old Testament, you'll know that he is that beast which opposes the things of God. He is a serpent. And he lives within the chaos that he creates which opposes God at every turn. And it is interesting that in the Revelation, where does the beast come out of? the ocean, the sea. Name me two miracles that Jesus did that both speak to his mastery over Leviathan. He walked on the water, which goes back to Genesis 3, and he will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. So he walked on the water, which is the chaos where Leviathan lived. And he spoke To calm the sea, which is the same word that's used, by the way, when he rebukes the demoniacs. The exact same Greek word. No more sea means there will be no more chaos, no more home for Leviathan, no more of that which opposes the things of God. So in that little phrase... There will be no more sea, goes back to Isaiah 27.1, where Leviathan is smited and the new creation starts. There is no more of this. That's what no more sea means. So the idea of literally interpreting something in a particular way completely misses an absolutely beautiful statement of what God is going to do. And that statement right there in Revelation twelve 1, Rev, goes where? All the way back to Genesis 3.15. What did I say? Oh, I said 12. 21, one. Yeah. 27. Yeah, I believe so. I may be wrong on that. But there's, uh, it's called the... Uh, I, uh, Isaiah Apocalypse, it starts, I believe, in uh, Isaiah 27. And it, it has to do with Leviathan being destroyed and the beginning of the new creation. So, what that looks forward to is the end of there being any influence of anything that opposes God removed from the new creation. That's what that statement means. There is no more sea. No more Leviathan, no more chaos, no more uncreatedness, no more things that stand up against and oppose God and his blessed and sovereign rule. That's what that one little statement means. And half of, the, of America believes that there's not going to be any water. I'm sorry, that's, that's a hard thing for me to, to get. Yes, Susan, shoot, Mike. What, what do you mean by uncreated? So, God has an order in an uncreation. God created order out of chaos, and the spirit, of the, the spirit brooded over the face of the deep, right? There's this idea of there being chaos in the, in the original created order, and then God brought order to it. D- does he not? So, God said, let there be... A distinction between land and water. Let there be a distinction between day and night. Let there be a distinction. And God sets boundaries and He creates a created order. The enemy, on the other hand, and we can see this going on right now, wants to restore everything, return everything back to uncreated or disorder. He wants to uncreate. So He's doing that right now. And a big one that you guys may be very well familiar with is in what area where a boundary is set? Gender. This is the work of the enemy, to bring chaos to God's order. Okay? He wants to uncreate. So that's what I mean. Does that answer your question? Okay. And the idea of there being water in a lot of the different creation motifs is very important if you're into that kind of thing and want to research that out, especially with regards to the temple. Okay. That's why the deluge. That's why it was water at Noah went with Noah because it was re- restored back to a pre-created state, and then God restarted again with Noah. All right. I'm talking to you a lot about biblical theology. I hope. Did I run off and leave anybody? Sorry. <laughs> But I just wanted to give you guys a differentiation between what the literal hermeneutic will do and what the spiritual hermeneutic will bring to the table. And I think in that particular instance, this is one of the best that I could think of, really highlights what I would consider one of the main problems with literally interpreting prophetic um, literature. Now, as we've said, that there is next uh, a part of this that has to do with chronology. Okay. Oops. All right, I'll stick to my notes. A major component of the dispensational literalism is their understanding of a literal chronology of eschatological event, as portrayed in such passages as Matthew twenty-four. Now, if you're familiar with Matthew twenty-four. And the disciples come to Jesus and they say, tell us, this, tell us the things that must happen. What are the signs of your coming? And Jesus lays out a list. Now, most people read this as a chain of sequential events. Right? Well, then this will happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen. Very few people realize that Jesus is answering two separate questions there. And the chapter really needs to be broken out into the address of each one of those questions individually. But because of a lot of what's going on, and because they ask a question that's specific to the Jewish nation, because the way that the literal chronological hermeneutic is read, we understand that there's a place where the church is lifted out and the rest of it has to do with the Jewish nation. So it fits nicely into dispensational theology. Okay, So, when you have a chance, look at Matthew 24. They also do it with the entire book of Revelation. The entire book of Revelation from, well, actually the, the statement to the churches is, is, or the, the first three chapters with regards to the churches is, is not, but starting at four on all the prophetic literature about the things that are coming Upon the face of the earth, according to Revelation, are all chronological, and this is why this is important, and this is why I may go over it. All that has to do with the Book of Revelation from four one on is basically taking Daniel's seventy years or seven. Is it seventy years? Yeah, seventy years, and and understanding it in terms of Revelation. So they're taking an Old Testament passage and forcing it into a New Testament hermeneutic. All right. So that's why you get seven years of tribulation because it is one of the weeks of Daniel's. 70 weeks. I said years. Sorry. Daniel's 70 weeks. All right. So so the seven years tribulation is actually one of the weeks times and times and a half and seasons and all the different things that Daniel speaks about has to do with the way that revelation is read. All right, should be noted that much much of dispensationalist eschatology timeline comes from what is called Daniel. Oh, I just said that. Um, this is a this is a an instance. And I'll actually tell you that when we get to, when we get to the uh, covenantal hermeneutic, one of the biggest rubs against it, and they actually say this, dispensationalists will say, that one of the reasons that covenant hermeneutics can't work is because it takes and interprets the Old Testament by the New. That's, they say it blatantly. They say you can't do that. And yet every hermeneutic book that I've read does it the opposite way. And most of us understand that the fullness of what God has talked about is in the New Testament. So when we understand what's going on in the New Testament, we can look back at the Old Testament and go, Oh, I understand that now, right? But with prophetic language, dispensationalists say you cannot do that. You must take the literal understanding of the Old Testament and insert it into the prophetic statements in the New. You must. So it's backwards. That's why this is weird, because you take Revelation and you take an Old Testament verse and you apply it to a New Testament construct and you make the New Testament function backward. And that's, that's an odd thing to do. So I'm hoping I'm teaching you guys also how to read the Bible right. All right. Rick, did you have? Oh, I thought you were drawing in. All right. All right then according to the dispensational model eschatological plan of redemption is viewed chronologically as follows I'll go over this somewhat slow Old Testament creation non-specific eschatological significance placed on the details of the original order so there is really no reference to to the end of things in Revelation to the beginning of things in Genesis within the dispensational hermeneutic. Okay? So they don't understand that what God originally created and called good is going to be glorified at the, in, in Revelation 22, 21. They don't make that equation. Why? Because that and, it's dispensational. That's an old dispensation. God's going to make all things new, so there's no reference going backwards. Okay? So there's no specific eschatological sig- significance placed on Genesis. I grew up in dispensational theology, and I never heard a reference to Genesis 3.15, ever. And in my estimation, Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium or the Proto-Evangelium, depends on how you want to say it, the first gospel, and I will put enmity between your seed and the serpent, and he will crush his head, and you will bruise his heel. It is that statement that everything hinges on. From that point, the unfolding of Scripture begins to happen. Right? So in my estimation, from a covenantal perspective, you have to take Revelation, uh, Genesis 3.15 and understand how it affects everything you read in, Gen- in Revelation. It is the rule and reign of Christ Jesus as he gains through his redemptive act. But was lost in the fall. Okay? Fall Abraham and the promises. This is the big one in dispensationalism. Father of Israel. Interestingly enough, Abraham, Abram was not an Israelite. Just saying. Um he wasn't. <laughs> um Number four, redemption of a chosen people through whom all the nations would be blessed. So in the Old Testament, God is building a people, but it must be preempted by saying God is building an earthly people by which he will create a monarchical reign on the earth through. That's the point of the Old Testament. So the promise to Abraham, through whom all nations will be best, the giving of the law, sacrifices, and tabernacle, why? That is the structure of God's dealing with Israel on the earth, right? That is the way that their monarchical earthly kingdom is to be constructed and organized. And in all of this, there is the promise of a Messiah who would come and the, the, the messianic promise is specifically for the nation of Israel. Specifically for the nation of Israel. Okay? So that's Old Testament. And that is really in a nutshell. All right? Now then, you have to see, see it this way in dispensational break. Jesus comes. Israel rejects the Messiah. Okay, right? They reject their earthly king. So the physical kingdom that God would have restored through through Jesus on the earth for the Israelite nation is now spiritualized to the gentiles. Okay? Does that make sense? You guys all with me there? So now in the New Testament, we read a different dispensation. The coming of the promised Messiah started that. Rejection of him by Israel. Secondary redemptive plan for the Gentiles is now initiated. Israel is put on hold. Now we're going to start something new over here. This was all about law. This is now about grace because the law is not intended. Oops. The law is not intended. The law is the structure of the Old Testament Israel. Not intended over here. It's a new salvific plan for a new people, the Gentile people. Establishment of the Gentile church or the spiritual people of God. Oh, yeah, spiritual. So the spiritual people of God, all right? And then this is called the church age, which Israel is not part of the church. Because the church is the heavenly people of God. Okay? Now this comes to the third dispensation. In times, millennial reign, okay? So this is all chronological Ending of the church age by means of a rapture, Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians. Beginning of a seven-year tribulation period, Revelations 4 through 21, and the second return of Christ, okay? Three and a half years of global peace established by a nefarious antichrist and his false prophet. Three and a half years follow of wrath and judgment as exemplified in chronological order of the seven bowls, seals, and uh, trumpets. Second coming of Christ in Armageddon, Antichrist and the false prophet are destroyed, and the earthly millennial reign of Christ is established, wherein Christ reigns with his spiritual people in the previously raptured church. Satan is bound. Okay, it's during this... 1,000 years of paradise. Israel, God's earthly people, are redeemed through the temple and sacrificial systems of the Israelites uh, um, are redeemed, and the sacrificial system of the Israelites is reestablished. All right. I'm going to look at this real quick. on this may be redundant. All right, I'll just say a couple of things here. All of this has dramatic ways on the way that you understand end-time prophecy, yes? All of it does. So you have different dispensations, Israel, the church, millennial reign, where what was promised over here is then reestablished over here. So you can understand now why Israel is such, a, such an important component To the dispensational idea. And this is why when you talk to a dispensationalist and you start talking to them about the things that Israel is not. Or perhaps they are a foreshadowing of God's fuller revelation with the church where they're included. You get things like what Hal Lindsey said that anybody who... That, that the, covenant the, uh, the covenant theology, I don't like using that t- term, that's what it's called. But the covenant her- hermeneutic is anti-Semitic in its origin. Semitic, yeah. Which means it's anti-Jewish. Okay, so. Now, we understand all of this, so let's go down here to some of the problems. What are some of the problems... dispensationalism what can you see as being a problem with some of the things now let me just say this to you real quick for years and years I was a dispensationalist okay we're not talking about people that are going to hell All right, there are very very extremely learned men who are dispensationalists very learned men I had lunch with one of them this week some of their arguments are compelling I am not one because of this reason and this reason alone, what I now hold to, which is our millennialism, creates far less theological conundrums than does dispensationalism. Dispensationalism at its very root causes some insurmountable theological problems, and my understanding of uh, of a hermeneutic is not number one. That everything that you understand about the Bible must work together. You can't have any standalone theologies or doctrines. If it doesn't work in conjunction with everything else that you understand, then there's something wrong with that one doctrine. Correct. So if you have a plan of salvation that you understand that God is accomplishing through a particular through the through the verses of Scripture, and then you create an eschatology that brings that all to conclusion that differs than your. Than the way you understand salvation, probably something wrong with your eschatology. The other thing is, is that uh, that I understand, uh, and the way that I understand it, is that every theology that you hold must have, you must take out as far as it goes. You must understand what the implications of it are to the fullness, to its fullness. You can't just hold a particular position because I like it. And then have it just run into all kinds of problems toward the end when God brings all things to conclusion. There must be a consistent continuum in the way that you think. And all things must work together. So what are some of the problems? And then we're going to stop here. And then next week we'll jump in fresh and new from a covenant theology standpoint. Okay? What are some of the problems that you see, that you may see right off the top of your head? Uh, my question last week is, is uh, when you talked about the sacrifices in the temple mm-hmm. during the millennium, is the fact that that uh, uh, just de- uh, took down all of the, uh, the value of Jesus and what he did on the cross? Mm-hmm. That's a big one. And even dispensationalists will admit that some of their theology diminishes the work of Christ, but they cling to it. Because they understand it as a question they can't answer. All right, so let me just read a couple. You guys can stop me anytime. Yes. Oh, scratching his neck. All right, let me just go over general theological issues. It creates a discontinuity between Old and New Testament, it creates a discontinuity between the two Testaments, Old and New. It actually creates this idea that one is of one thing and the other is of other and that never the twain shall meet. Okay? It creates a discontinuity between the beginning and the end. What God initially started is going to be different than what he ends with. In covenant theology, what God ends with is glor- is a glorified is the glorification of what he started with, okay? Third, it creates an unnatural discontinuity between the Israelites and the church. God has, in fact, created two mutually exclusive peoples, earthly Israelite and heavenly Gentiles. Fourth, it creates the need for two separate redemptive purposes, or redemptive programs. Oops. That's a big one. That is a big one. Okay. In that, there are, Christ is not the fulfillment of all the sacrifices in the feast, nor does he fulfill the law for all nations. Nor is he the tabernacle. Okay. Since the church is a parenthetical interjection into God's redemptive plan for Israel, God's sovereignty, providence, election, and omniscience are all brought into question. That's a big one for me. That's why I have a hard time with it. Yes. Uh, Since the church is is a parenthetical interjection into God's plan... Actually, let me say it this way. Since God's church is a parenthetical interjection into God's redemptive plan for Israel, his sovereignty, providence, election, um, and omniscience are all knowing, are all brought into question. Okay? As we've seen, it violates... The first rule of biblical hermeneutic, the New Testament, interprets the old. Um, It fails to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the eschatological focal point of all things. And it contradicts what's called the analogy of faith, which is that the simple... Must interpret the complicated, okay? I'll stop there. then we'll talk about covenant hermeneutics, and I'm covering a lot of ground of things that I had laid out earlier as individual talking points. I'm kind of incorporating them into a lot of things. We're going to talk about covenant theology, then we'll talk about millennial concepts and ways of understanding prophetic literature, and then we'll get into the text, okay? Everybody good? Good, all right. Father, thanks for this time together. We pray that your spirit would enlighten us, that we would come to a joyful reception of the things that you have planned for those who love you, that I cannot, that eye has not seen nor has entered into the heart of man the things that you have for those who love your son, I pray that that would become the joy and our hope and the reason that we sing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.